Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. So in my new job at Facebook, uh, there are a number of amenities, and one of them is there's this gigantic chess set. Is it staffed with with real people and horses and things like that that will come to life and kill each other when you... Well, it's not exactly the Harry Potter version, but um, it's maybe it's maybe like a, a quarter or a fifth size. Um, but it got me thinking about chess and other board games like Go... And uh, it it seems like a good time to do an episode about this, given that there was recently some news, a little bit out of Facebook and also some out of Google, about artificial intelligence and how they're doing against us human counterparts. Yeah, it's been a big week for uh, for Go, especially. Let's talk about it. All right, let's go. Ha, sorry. You're listening to Linear Digressions. So big week this week for artificial intelligence. Uh, as you said in the intro, Google, or more specifically DeepMind, which is a, a sort of subsidiary within Google that works a lot on deep learning, reinforcement learning, these sorts of things. DeepMind has been working on an algorithm that can play the ancient game of Go, which is like complicated chess. Uh, I'll talk about the rules of Go in a few minutes, but you should think of it sort of like chess, but more difficult. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because the rules are actually simpler. Yeah, it is so, it's pretty straightforward actually. Yeah, the the game itself is very simple, but the possible permutations, the possible different states of the board and the type I guess of of processing and intuition and pattern recognition that you need to solve it are a little bit more difficult for AI than say chess. Well, a lot a bit more difficult for AI than chess. Um, but And in fact, as recently as a year or two ago, we were thinking that there are many regimes where artificial intelligence has been surpassing humans, especially in playing games. And Go was the one holdout. And the thinking was that it would be safe from the computers for at least another 10 years or so. But as we as we saw this week, it looks like that lead that the humans have is is crumbling away very quickly. Yeah, so maybe we should take a moment and just talk a little bit about the differences between chess and Go in terms of the way that the computers might think about it. So we'll get all the way to Go in a second. Let me start with some simpler games, and you can see the patterns that that start emerging as games get more complex. So very simple game is imagine tic-tac-toe. You remember when you were a kid and you played tic-tac-toe, and probably sometime in elementary school, you realized that every game you're playing turns into a stalemate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you're good, if you're if you're playing against someone who's really bad at tic-tac-toe, you actually might be able to win. But if you're playing against an opponent who actually is doing enough thinking about it or has sufficient practice, uh, you will never be able to win and they will never be able to win against you because there's always a move that will eventually uh, converge to a stalemate between the two players. Yeah. And This is an example of what we might say is a broken game. So for any configuration of X's and O's on the tic-tac-toe board, also known as knots and crosses for for those of our listeners who are uh, across the ocean. So for every different configuration of X's and O's, there's some optimal move that will be the next move, assuming that it's your turn. And then you make that move. And then there's an optimal next move for the other person. And since the board is pretty small and there's only a fairly limited number of things you can do, namely place an X or place an O, then uh, you can basically solve for the entire game and 
you could imagine writing a very simple little script that a computer could just be pre-programmed in with all of the different configurations that the board could have. And it's almost like a lookup table. If you see a board like this, make this move. Right. Yeah. If you look at the size of the tic-tac-toe board, it's three by three, which means that there are a possible of nine squares on that first move that say I could place an X. And then your next move, there's a there are eight different squares, nine squares minus the one that I took up. And then if you go on seven, then six, then five. And if you multiply all those together, then you get all of the different permutations of the game. And it's kind of a big number for humans, but it's really not a very big number for computers. So computers could traverse every every single possible game of tic-tac-toe in a very short amount of time and effectively, quote unquote, solve the game. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So then going up in complexity, we can think of something like checkers. So now we're in an eight by eight board and all checkers are, are created equal. So you don't have the complexity of different types of moves that you could be making. But of course, there are many different configurations of, of board space that you can have. And checkers, in fact, is a broken game as well for any configuration of checkers on a checkerboard. There's an optimal move. And I once heard this anecdote about hundreds of years ago, they'd they didn't have the computing power to do the tree search all the way down the checkers game. And so they didn't realize, basically, the checkers was a broken game. And I heard this story of a checkers tournament that the humans had, had basically figured out that it was a broken game, that for any given move, there was a next best move that they could make. And this starts all the way at the first move. So there's an optimal first move, and then there's an optimal second move, and there's an optimal third move. And what ended up happening was in the this checkers world championship – these people just ended up playing literally the same game against each other over and Oof. over and over again because it was the best game and it sounds really boring. Yeah, no, that sounds like a lot of fun to watch the first maybe three times until you realize that it's the same game. <laughs> and then adding even more in complexity, we have chess. So again, we have the eight by eight board, but now there's many more types of moves that I can be making. There's different types of pieces that I have and different rules that apply to those pieces. And you also start to think about it maybe a little bit more in terms of a game that has some grand strategy attached and some some structure to the way that you might be playing as a person that you're trying to set up strategic positions. I suppose this is true of checkers as well, but I think it's much more manifest in chess. So chess is, is a, a fairly complicated game and it's much more difficult to solve than checkers is in terms of what's the optimal ne next best move because there's lots of moves that are potentially on the table right so you can't just run through every single possibility i mean checkers actually does have a good number a, a pretty large number uh, it has a search space of five times ten to the 20 which is pretty high but eventually with enough computing power you can get through it chess is a bit more daunting than that yeah and so for a long time we thought that chess was one of these things that if a computer could ever beat a human in chess, that's a sign of, of artificial intelligence or something, because we mm. think of it as something that is not computationally tractable. And therefore, for a computer to be beating human signals some kind of intelligence beyond just a simple lookup table like you might have with tic-tac-toe. Right. Of course, in 1997, IBM built Deep Blue, which is a very specialized computer plus the algorithms that sit on top of the hardware that was just designed for beating Gary Kasparov in chess. And it succeeded in beating Gary Kasparov in chess. And, and right now, the best computers are better than the best humans in chess. And so the, the thinking would go that Deep Blue, this computer that was able to win chess, 
would maybe be somewhat intelligent? Well, in the 50s, maybe 60s, 70s, earlier in the 20th century, right. that was certainly one of, the, one of the lines of thinking was that chess was a good benchmark for artificial intelligence. Because again, we think of it as something that you need to have a human level of intuition and understanding for. Now, it turns out that what Deep Blue does is actually fairly interesting and complicated, but the, the gist of it is just a very fast searching algorithm. Okay, so it's basically doing the same thing that tic-tac-toe would do, maybe not going to the very, very end of the of each possible game, but it is doing a brute forcing where it's looking forward however many possible moves and all the possible games and deciding what's the most optimal move given my computing constraints. Yeah, that's that's a pretty decent description of what it's doing. Right, so not really artificial intelligence as as we might have thought in the 50s or 60s. Yeah, I think the the term that we would use today is maybe weak AI as opposed to strong AI. Okay. So now let's get to Go, finally. So Go is where chess was pretty darn complicated before. Go is explosively complicated. Um, so Go is 19 by 19 in terms of the board size. So it's more than four times as big as just in terms of numbers of places where you can put pieces is four times as big as a chessboard. And the rules, like you said, are very simple, but they can interact with themselves in very complicated ways. It's basically a game of territory acquisition. So you place your stones, there are black stones and white stones, each player has a color, and you place your stones at the intersection points of this 19 by 19 grid. And when you put your stone down, you're sort of claiming a piece of territory. And the amount of territory that you have surrounded by your stones is sort of the measure of, of who's winning and who's not. However, if you start to surround the other person's stones, then you can remove their stones from the board. So there's also this aspect, not just of taking your own territory, but potentially of encroaching into the other person's territory. And so, like you said, very simple rules, but it can have very complex dynamics. Right, absolutely. And um, and if you compare chess and Go, the average number of possible moves in chess for a particular board configuration is somewhere around 35 possible moves. But with Go, it's around 250. And so that seems, that seems like, okay, it's like eight times as much, but that's eight times as much per turn. And so if you go two turns, it's eight times as much plus eight times as much, which actually ends up being 64 times as much among those two turns. And you can go further and further, and it explodes exponentially, like you said earlier, because the, the number of possible moves compound and exponentiate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's this combinatorially explosive thing that even though we're pretty good at some of these search trees for things like chess, yeah, the go tree is just blowing up so fast that we can't keep up with it computationally. And so this was why the thinking was that Go was sort of the last bastion of human dominance. It's because humans can, there are some humans who are very, very good at Go, and it's not because they're necessarily doing all the mental calculations of how to go all the way down the tree, but in general, the strategies that humans are able to come up with because of the way that we think end up being superior to just the brute force search algorithms uh, that the computers are able to execute because the computers aren't able to go very, very far down the tree. However, uh, it seems like that idea of 
of the relative dominance of humans versus computers in Go. That looks like it's under assault right now. Because what happened this week was there's this uh, this group in London. It's called DeepMind. It's owned by Google. And they've been working on an algorithm that is designed to play Go. And this week, it beat the top-ranked European player, who's not the, the best player in the world. This This algorithm will be playing the best Go player in the world, I think, in a few months' time. But playing against the best European player, it won very handily, five to nothing. That's five games to zero games. So it won five games in a row. Yeah. Just to be clear, this was the uh, 633rd ranked Go player in the world. So not the world's expert by any means. And if you read a lot of articles, they they talk about this Go expert as if it's one of the number one players in the world. Uh Granted, 633 is pretty high up there, given how many people uh, are are good at Go. Yeah, it will be pretty interesting in a few months to see how this machine does against the, the guy who's number one, because it'll, it'll be right. playing him. And so we can talk a little bit, actually, about the algorithm that they used here, because it, it's kind of an interesting blend of several different algorithms. Because like we said, just a brute force search down the tree is not going to get you very far with Go. So they had to do several things sort of strung together in a way to make this a more tractable problem. So the first thing is you have a combination of deep learning, which is uh, deep neural nets, neural nets with many hidden layers, and also a a very clever way of doing a Monte Carlo-based tree search. And that's the big sort of overarching structure to the algorithm. So specifically... The first step in this algorithm is there's a convolutional neural net. And convolutional neural nets are the kinds of neural nets that they use for image identification in particular. So think of something that's related to computer vision. And this neural net is just looking at the board. And that's how it actually recognizes the structure of what's going on in the board. The next thing that these guys did was they had a supervised learning aspect to the algorithm. So they actually fed in 30 million moves from Go games that had actually been played by people. Oh, wow. So it learned by looking at a huge corpus of past games and moves that yeah. hu- that expert humans have made. Yeah. So in particular, it had to learn, for example, the, the rules of the game. And so the way that you do that is just by showing it lots of games. That also sort of jumpstarts the learning, that it, it starts to get an idea of what look like effective things to be doing in certain types of situations. So there's this supervised aspect to it, but that is only going to show you a very small sampling of all the possible games that could be played. So that's not going to be nearly comprehensive enough for you to solve Go. So the computer also has to have a way of figuring out when it's on the right track. And it has to do that in only what we would call maybe a semi-supervised way. And so what they have is a reinforcement learning algorithm that sets up uh, by the rules of reinforcement learning, it has a, a policy aspect to it. So what is the computer going to do in a given situation? That's sort of what the policy is. And the payoff uh, part of the reinforcement learning algorithm, which is whether it thinks it's winning or not. And so what it's doing when it's trying to figure out what policy to be taking, what sort of moves to be making, there's going to be many different policies that are on the table. Each one of them has combinatorially explosive numbers of actions that it could take. Different policies might be something like, I'm going to work on the structure in the upper right-hand corner of the board. And that might mean many different things. Mm. So that's a, an example of a policy and the, the moves. And, and rather than 
looking through the entire tree of all the different moves that it could make about developing the structure in the upper right-hand corner of the board, what it does is it has a Monte Carlo-based tree search sampling aspect to it. So it takes the distribution of all the actions that it could make associated with the policy. It samples from that distribution via Monte Carlo, and it looks at the types of payoffs that it would get for those sample moves. And it starts to get an idea without looking at all of the options, just by sampling from from the distribution, it can get an idea of whether the moves that are associated with going with that policy are going to be giving it a better payoff than the moves that are associated with some other policy. Oh, so basically, it's looking at a particular policy, like I'm going to work on the upper right hand corner structure of the board. It samples from all of the different possible combinations there. Uh, It takes a relatively small sample, so it doesn't have to go way down the rabbit hole for every single game. And then it evaluates that random sample to decide whether that policy versus some other policy is going to be more viable for it. Yeah. And so when it's sampling from the actions associated with a policy, the way to think about that is that it's keeping the breadth of options under control. It doesn't have to look at every single option that it has for its next move. It just has to sample from them in a reasonably representative way and maybe take 1% of them. And from that, it can figure out which of the policies seems to be uh, doing the best in a given situation. So that's how they constrain the breadth is by this sampling. And then once it has a policy, it can decide to actually focus more energy on deciding what to do within that structure, for example. So then once you've constrained the breadth of the search that you have to look through, you also have to constrain the depth because you can't be going forward 10, 20, 30 moves in the future. That's going to blow up as well. Yeah, definitely. The way that they dealt with this was they had an algorithm that could look, I'm making up numbers here, but just for illustrative purposes. Sure. The algorithm can computationally handle looking ahead, let's say 10 moves. Okay. It can't computationally handle looking ahead 20. So if you can come up with a way of estimating what goes on between move 10 and move 20 and whether what the payoff for you is going to be, then rather than looking all the way down to 20, you can just look down to 10 and then substitute in sort of that expected value for the whole rest of the tree. So rather than having to build out the entire tree of all the moves you could make, you just estimate how well all of those moves put together will serve you and then you substitute that in instead of the tree itself. So it's a way of extrapolating your likely payoff as opposed to calculating your actual payoff. Yeah. And so between the the supervised learning and the reinforcement learning and the deep neural nets and the convolutional neural nets and the 30 million moves of of Go that this thing has been able to watch. Also, they had a, a an extensive training period where they had the algorithm actually play itself, and that helped it train a lot. There were a lot <laughs> oh, of pieces that came together to this very specific purpose, but it achieved what they were trying to achieve, which was they they beat a very good human Go player. Uh, and that that is AlphaGo. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.